0: Back in the 1990s, a pastor friend out in the Chicago area told me that whenever he sensed he was losing his congregation's interest in a sermon, he would quickly tell a Michael Jordan story, as in Michael Jordan, the most dominant basketball player of his time. Didn't matter what he actually said about Michael Jordan, might not even have anything to do with the sermon. All he had to do was say that name and suddenly everyone was paying attention. Well, I found a similar thing to be true here in New England when I mentioned the name Tom Brady. And I've played that card more than a few times over the past 20 years, and and I'm playing it again today. I mean, even though he left New England, it seems that Patriot fans continue to to be loyal to him and to revel in his success. So I'm going to begin with Tom Brady today, Not, not only to get your attention, but because it actually does have something to do with the sermon. As we all know, uh, Brady just won his seventh Super Bowl, two more than any other player and three more than any other quarterback. He did it in his first year with a new team. He did it at the age of 43, four years older than the next oldest quarterback to do that. And he did it with style, playing a nearly flawless game. All of which causes us to ask, how does he do it? How does he manage to be at the top of his game at an age when his peers are sitting in the broadcast booth or watching from their recliners at home? And how does he look so good doing it? I mean, we've watched legends like Brett Favre and Peyton Manning creak and stumble their way through their final years. But Brady looks as sharp as ever. Well, we know how he does it because he's told us how he does it. He does it by ordering his entire life around playing quarterback in the NFL. Every aspect of his life, his diet, his sleep, his daily routine, his mental habits, and and of course, his workouts and practice sessions, they're all designed to prepare him for those 60 minutes of game time. Uh, we've heard all about the, the kale smoothies and the, and the 8.30 bedtimes and the stretching those resistance bands. What I'm getting at here is that the secret of Brady's success isn't so much in how he plays, it's how he practices. Or to put it another way, Brady is able to do what he does on the field because of how he lives off the field. Now, speaking of the 90s, anybody recognize the the bracelet I'm wearing here today? Uh, I'm guessing that many of us had one like it uh, back in the day. It's got the letters WWJD on it. What would Jesus do? Uh, It was the mantra of many Christians for a good stretch of years. Uh, The idea was simply to ask yourself in every situation, what would Jesus do? And then do that. It seemed like a winning strategy. I mean, Jesus always knew what to do, right? He he always did what was kind and and compassionate and strong and wise and good. So if we could just remember to, to look at our bracelet as we made our way through the day and then do what Jesus would do, well, we too could be like Jesus. Now the problem, of course, is that knowing what Jesus did and doing what Jesus did are two very different things. Uh, We discovered that no, no matter how hard we tried to be kind and compassionate and strong and wise and good, we just couldn't pull it off, at least not with the same consistency and beauty that Jesus did. Our minds and bodies and spirits just wouldn't or couldn't do what we wanted them to do. Which probably explains why uh, these bracelets can only be found in junk drawers and backpacks today. Now, for for all kinds of reasons, I'm a little uncomfortable putting Tom Brady and Jesus in the same category. Uh, Especially after Brady's... uh, Recent uh, undisciplined post Super Bowl shenanigans. But, but there is a convergence of truth here that we don't want to miss. If we want to do what Jesus did, we have to live like Jesus lived. We have to order every aspect of our lives around doing the Father's will. Because it was the things that Jesus practiced in his private life, the disciplining of his mind and body and spirit that enabled him to do what he did in his public life. And those private practices involved things like prayer and fasting and scripture and simplicity and and a host of others. If we want to do what Jesus did, We have to live like Jesus lived. To arrange our lives around activities and practices that will enable us in the moment to do what Jesus would have done. Practices that will train our minds and bodies and spirits to be kind and compassionate and strong and wise and good and all the other things that we human beings find hard to do sometimes. So, so that's what this series is all about. As we mentioned earlier, we find ourselves in a, in a season the church calls Lent. Now, I'll save you from Googling it because I already did. Lent comes from the Old English word lenctin, meaning spring season. So, in Christian tradition, Lent is a 40 day season of spiritual reflection and and repentance and renewal in preparation for for Easter Sunday when we celebrate Christ's resurrection. And as you probably know, it's customary to give something up for Lent. Usually it's some kind of food or drink, but but it could be any activity or, or habit that's a regular part of your life. It's a practice that's known as fasting. Giving something up for spiritual purposes. Now, the question you you might be asking at this point is, is why? What does giving up coffee or chocolate or Facebook have to do with following Jesus? What's the point of making life harder for 40 days? How can giving something up for Lent somehow make me more like Jesus? Well, those are some of the questions we'd like to go after in this series. We're going to spend the next six Sundays on Good Friday, not just studying the way of Jesus, but actually practicing the way of Jesus. Each week, we'll look at one of the things Jesus did off the field, so to speak, things that enabled him to do what he did on the field in the moments that really mattered: practices like like prayer and scripture and simplicity and service and celebration and submission. And and because it's Lent, uh, the foundational practice of this series will be fasting. And and since giving something up for 40 days sounds rather daunting, we're going to try to make it a little more accessible, a little more interesting, by giving up something different each week. Um, Not just food or drink, but, but other everyday things and activities. I'm not going to tell you, what, you are, what they are yet because that'll be the fun part. Now, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. But we're going to discover that when we give them up for a time, it creates space for something new and beautiful to happen in our minds and bodies and spirits. Something that might just make us more like Jesus. So so let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, to the the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and discover what he did privately that enabled him to live the most beautiful and influential life the world has ever seen. We're going to be looking today at the temptation of Jesus and it's found in in the opening verses of of Luke chapter 4. Let's just read and walk our way through. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now now this incident happens just after Jesus' baptism, Uh, that that moment when, when a voice came from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. IMMEDIATELY AFTER THAT, LUKE TELLS US, THE SPIRIT LED JESUS INTO THE DESERT, THE WILDERNESS, TO BE TEMPTED. NOW, A FEW THINGS WE MIGHT WANT TO NOTICE QUICKLY HERE. FIRST, IT WAS THE SPIRIT WHO LED HIM INTO THE DESERT. SO so THIS WAS A PURPOSEFUL TRIP, NOT A MISTAKE or, OR A DETOUR. SOMETHING HAD TO HAPPEN THERE IN THE DESERT BEFORE JESUS WAS READY TO BEGIN HIS MINISTRY. Secondly, we want to notice that the the desert or the wilderness, that that, that term had layers of meaning. I mean, first of all, in in the imaginations of people of the day, the wilderness was literally a wild place, a a place where bad things happened and where God was hard to find. Uh, The wilderness was was also the place where, where the nation of Israel had lost its way for 40 years or when they fail to follow God into the promised land. So when Jesus went into the wilderness, it was a serious moment. And third thing to notice is that, is that he, he was sent there to be tempted or tested. Uh, that one word can be translated both ways, and, and it carries both meanings here. Uh, we can define a temptation as a solicitation to evil. It's when someone or something tries to get you to do something wrong, something hurtful. Uh, the purpose of a temptation is to get you to fail. But the word could also be translated test. And a test is an invitation to growth, right? I mean, when, you, when you pass a test, it means you've learned something. It means, means you're ready to move on to the next thing. The goal of a test is that you will pass. So was this a test orchestrated by Satan? I'm sorry, was this, was this a temptation orchestrated by Satan? Or was it a test orchestrated by God? Well, the answer is yes. Both things were happening, as they usually are at, at critical moments in our lives. And that's what I want us to to, to see here before we go on in the story. This was a critical moment for Jesus. It it was the launch of his public ministry. And, and, And how he handled this moment would set the trajectory of what was to come. And I happen to believe that this is a critical moment for us. Lent of 2021. I believe that. I mean, we're, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the coronavirus shutdown. It, it's been one of the most challenging years we, we've ever had to face as individuals and families, as a church, and as a nation. Politically, financially, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. We have been stressed and stretched in ways we never have been before. Now, hopefully, we are beginning to emerge from this crisis. Vaccines are rolling out. Politicians are at least talking to each other. Racial justice has become a national conversation. And spring is is actually a month away, on the calendar anyway, anyway. And as a church, we're we're beginning to think about what Grace Chapel will look like on the other side of all of this. So how we handle this season, how we consolidate our learnings from the past year, and how we relaunch our, our lives and families and our church will set a spiritual trajectory for years to come. So it's both a temptation and a test. The temptation would be to go rushing back to life and work and family and church the way it was before, having learned nothing, having been unchanged by the experience. The test is to to emerge from this season more attuned to God and each other, more alive to God's purposes, than we ever have been before. So how will we handle this moment, this season? Well, Jesus decided that the best way to handle his moment was to fast, to give up food for 40 days. Now, now he he wasn't the first to to do this at at a critical moment. Moses fasted for 40 days at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Elijah fasted for for 40 days after his victory on Mount Carmel. And so now Jesus, on the threshold of his public ministry, retreats to the wilderness to fast, to give up food for 40 days as a way of preparing himself for what was to come. Now, Now, why did he do that? What's the point of fasting? Well, that becomes clear in in the first temptation that comes Jesus' way. So, So let's press on in the story. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Now, how all this played out, we don't really know. Did Satan manifest himself in some physical form there in the desert? Did they face off against each other like a couple of gunslingers in an old Western? Or was this an internal dialogue that took place in Jesus' mind and spirit? We're not really told, and I'm not sure it really matters. The point is that in that moment, Satan approached Jesus at a point of need and tempted him to satisfy that need by exercising his power as the Son of God. Now, let's not miss the fact that that this was a real and legitimate need. I mean, verse 2 tells us that, that he ate nothing for 40 days, and at the end of it, he was hungry. I guess so. 40 days is is about the limit of a human's ability to go without food. And Jesus was fully human. But he was also fully God. So he certainly had the power to satisfy that legitimate need by turning stones into bread. So, So what was the problem? If temptation is a solicitation to evil, where was the evil in satisfying his hunger with a loaf of bread? Well, the problem wasn't the bread. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, man does not live on bread. He says, man does not live on bread alone. In other words, there's nothing wrong with bread. Bread is one of God's good gifts to humankind. It gives us the physical strength, the nourishment we need to live. The problem is that bread alone is not enough. Jesus needed spiritual strength to, to resist this temptation. He needed spiritual nourishment to, to make his way out of the wilderness and get on with his mission. And that spiritual strength and nourishment could only come from God, his heavenly Father. He actually says that in in Matthew's account of the story. Uh, In Matthew's version, Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, it's actually a quotation from the Hebrew Scriptures from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Now, for some reason, Luke doesn't include that phrase in his telling of the story. Uh, maybe it's because he's writing to a Gentile audience who m- might not be as familiar with the reference. Maybe it's to give preachers something to talk about in sermons. I don't know. But, but you can see that, that, that Jesus uh, in, in knew that in, in this moment, his, the greatest hunger wasn't hunger for food, It was a hunger for God. He didn't need bread for his stomach as much as he needed a word for his soul. And the word he needed could only come from his heavenly Father. Satan was tempting Jesus to act on his own, apart from God, which of course is the purpose of every temptation, to, to drive a wedge between us and God. If you are the son of God, Satan said. He's actually taunting Jesus with the words that he heard at his baptism just prior to this. You are my son whom I love. If you really are God's son, Satan is saying, if your heavenly father really loves you, surely he, he wouldn't want you to starve to death. So, so, so go ahead, have some lunch. What are you waiting for? what Jesus was waiting for was his heavenly Father. He was waiting for God the Father to meet his need. Perhaps by sending physical bread, maybe in the form of manna, as it was for Moses, or delivered by ravens, as it was for Elijah. But mostly he was waiting for spiritual bread in the form of some words that would sustain him, even in the absence of food. E- either way, as desperately as Jesus needed food that day, his greatest need, his deepest hunger, was for his Father. And that, friends, is the point of fasting. It's to remind us that our deepest hunger isn't for food but for God. That as much as we need things like food and drink and activity and conversation and all the other good gifts that God has has given us to enjoy in this world, what we need most of all is to know God and be known by God. To live every moment of our lives in relationship with God, in dependence on God, and for the glory of God. And if we're not careful, these these other things, these good gifts that God delights to give, they can become distractions from or substitutes for the better things, the greater gifts that God also wants to give. Gifts like, like clarity and insight and focus and freedom and contentment things that enable us to live well, to actually do some of the things that Jesus did. So so that's why we fast, to remind ourselves that our real hunger, our greatest need, is for God. And so we create space for God to fill our lives with himself. So, so I'm going to define fasting like this. Giving up something good to experience something better. Giving up something good to experience something better. When we fast, we give up something, something good. We, we give it up for a season in order to create some space in which God can give us something better. So to, to make all this a little more practical, uh, let me tell you how, how this works in my life. Now, I realize as I do that, <laughs> that, that Jesus warns us about not talking about our fasting lest we lose whatever benefit we might have gained. But, but, but as you're about to see, I really don't have a lot to brag about when it comes to fasting. I'm, I, I'm really a learner when it comes to fasting. In fact, for the, for the first 40 years or so of my life, I had very little experience with fasting. Uh, the few attempts I made to practice it were not very satisfying. They, they, they were tainted by, by legalism, trying to earn a blessing from God, uh, by superstition, thinking that somehow my prayers might be more powerful if I prayed them on an empty stomach. <laughs> They were tainted by pride, as I always seemed to find a way to let people know I was fasting. Legalism, superstition, pride, those things will ruin any spiritual practice. It wasn't until I began reading people like uh, Dallas Willard and Richard Foster, back in the 90s, by the way, that I began to understand how fasting and these other disciplines work. It's not that fasting and and solitude and simplicity impress God and, and make him more likely to bless us. It's that fasting and solitude and simplicity awaken us to our need for God and make space in our lives for God to come near. So, When I'm fasting from lunch and my stomach begins to rumble, instead of thinking about how how hungry I am and how impressed God must be with me, I simply say in my spirit, more than food, God, I want you. When I'm fasting from coffee and I'm struggling to concentrate on my sermon, I say to to myself, more than caffeine, Lord, I need your spirit. When I'm fasting from listening to music in the car, I'm saying in my spirit, more than classic rock, Lord, I want to hear your voice. Here I am, Lord. What do you have to say to me? Now, There's nothing wrong with lunch or coffee or music. But they can begin to clutter our lives. They can become things we depend on for our comfort or strength or inspiration rather than God. So so when we take a break from those things for a day or a week or a season, we create space for God to meet us and fill us with what we really need, which is his presence and his power. And if we stick with it, we'll discover that what God offers is way more satisfying than any of those other things, as good as they are. Can I call your attention to the graphic we settled on for this series? That white space there behind the word fast, that's the space we create when we give something up. And those bold and beautiful colors, that's what happens when God fills that space with himself. Listen to how John Piper puts it in one of the best books on fasting that I've ever read. It's called Hunger for God. If you don't feel strong desires for the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great I invite you to turn from the dulling effects of food and other earthly things and to say with some simple fast, this much, O God, I want you. More than food, more than drink, more than anything in the world, Lord, I want you. That's the essence and the spirit of fasting. now, a few words of warning or or, or at least caution. Uh, first, the benefits of a fast aren't always obvious or immediate. They may take some time to, to manifest themselves. And the practice of fasting can be difficult and, and even tedious. It's not unlike lifting weights or doing planks in the gym. It's hard. It doesn't feel good. And you may do it for a while without, without sensing any change. But if you stick with it, somewhere along the way, you'll discover that you're actually getting better at it. And that you're feeling stronger. And that you want more. Uh, And here's another thing about fasting and, and, and any of the other disciplines. You can't always draw a straight line from the practice to the benefit. Here's what I mean. Tom Brady will never be asked to run onto the football field and drink a kale smoothie or solve a brain teaser or stretch some resistance bands. But practicing those things off the field enables his mind and body and spirit to do the things he needs to do when it's time to take the field. Skipping a meal or or turning off the radio or memorizing a Bible verse won't automatically make you more like Jesus. But it might enable you to, to focus on Jesus or to hear from Jesus or to learn from Jesus. And if you keep those things up for a while, you'll find you actually are becoming more like Jesus. So as we begin this season of Lent, we'd like to invite you to fast forward with us. To try giving something up to experience something better. Each week we're we're going to suggest fasting from something related to whatever practice we're focusing on that particular week. And so this week we're going to invite you to, to give up a food or a drink or a meal for the week. And to take whatever time or energy or thought you would have devoted to that food or drink or meal and offer it to God instead. Ask Him to satisfy that hunger or thirst. Allow Him to fill that time and space with His Word or or with His Spirit. And in the weeks to come, we'll invite you to give up other things. Social media, maybe, or shopping, or or some favorite form of entertainment. Not, Not because there's anything wrong with those things, but because God might want to fill that time and space with something better with Himself. Now, if you like the idea of of giving something up for the whole 40 days, then please feel free to do that. The last thing in the world we want to do here is get legalistic or mechanical about it. Do what feels meaningful for you. And you might want to keep in mind that traditionally, Sundays in Lent are feast days, which means you get to break your fast on Sunday and enjoy the thing you've given up with a renewed sense of gratitude and, and delight. And since we weren't made for bread alone, but for every word that comes from the mouth of God, we're going to invite you to read and reflect on the Gospel of Luke during Lent. I'm going to try a a resource called Lent for Everyone, Volume 3. It's by the pastor and scholar N.T. Wright, who we like to quote around here a lot. But we'll post a few other suggested resources for your, your readings in Luke on our website, grace.org/Lent. Well, well, so it was that Jesus began his ministry with a fast. We said earlier that, that it was a critical moment for Jesus. There's this temptation in the wilderness. Now we didn't have time today to look at the rest of the story. But Satan is going to come after Jesus two more times. Trying to drive a wedge between Jesus and his father. Trying to sabotage the mission before it ever gets off the ground. And both times, Jesus fends him off with the words of scripture. Until Satan finally skulks off, defeated. At which point, Luke tells us, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about Him spread through the whole countryside. And so it is that we begin this season with a fast. Because this too is a critical moment as we prepare to relaunch our lives and families and careers and church. What we do in these days may very well set the trajectory for the days and months and years to come. And so may we, like Jesus, fast forward, giving up something good to experience something better. And may we emerge from this COVID winter in the power of the Spirit so that the news about Jesus might spread far and wide. Well, let's take a few minutes to to think about these things as we listen to this next song, and then we'll come back and close things out.